Good morning. I want to greet each one in Christ's name this morning. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to continue the study there. It went a lot longer between. I think it was close to five months ago that we last looked at Ephesians. The first chapter we looked at pointing to Christ. And this chapter um, looks more at our need of salvation. Death. It's an uncomfortable word that we try and avoid as much as possible. Just the other day I was walking through my yard and I walked past our little shed where we keep our lawnmower and garden tools, that kind of thing, and there was just this odor of death coming out from underneath the shed. And I asked my children and they weren't aware of it, but of anything dying, but when something's dead and you're around it, you know it. it it's unpleasant. So when we were in before we were a believer, before we were a Christian and turned our life over to Christ, the Bible says we were dead. Maybe you don't think about it, your life before you were a Christian as having an unpleasant odor or a stench, but I think we get the idea in God's eyes that's the way he sees it. And once we come to the truth, hopefully we also look back at our life <clears throat> before Christ and think of it that same way of something we want to avoid and also gratefulness from what God delivered us from. Let's start reading here in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins where in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us all sit together in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be dead in sin? Thankfully, if you're listening to me this morning in the message, hearing this message, you're not physically dead. But it is possible that you're still spiritually dead. Hopefully not. Or you've returned to that spiritual death. Once we're saved, but now we're walking back in that sin. I hope that's not the case, but that's not really my focus of my message. But I do want to challenge you. Make sure that you're not living in spiritual death this morning. Well, the first verse there talks about it being past tense. 
And I want to just leave out the words. I read them originally because they're there in our King James Bible. But if you see, hath he quickened has been added. It's not really, wasn't in the original text. And so we say, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's saying it in a past tense, something that was previously but is not currently. And I think that's important as we look at this passage this morning that he is talking to those who have been saved, who have been delivered from their past trespasses and sin. And he just goes on for the next two verses also, verse 2 and verse 3, of making it very clear that these people were sinners just like the rest of the world. And that's important to remember as we look at this passage this morning that none of us have gotten where we are today because we were born good, we were born perfect, we were born saved. We all were like this at one point. Why does Paul want to make that so clear? I think it's so that we understand and appreciate what Jesus, what God has delivered us from But he keeps showing us our imperfections and our faults before we came to Christ. Then in verse 4 comes the but. And I think this is a very encouraging verse. That no matter where we find ourselves in life, no matter what our past is, this verse can be very encouraging to us. But God... How powerful are those two words, but God. So much can be true. So much can be difficult in our lives, but God. Who is rich in mercy and for his great love wherewith he loved us. If it wasn't for this love, we'd still be miserable and living in sin. I don't want, I don't believe like five-point Calvinists do, that God's love and grace is irresistible. And that's the only reason that we are saved today. But there is a sense that outside of the grace of God, we would never have been able to make the decision to follow and to be saved. And so there's some truth in it, what they say, but it's not like we were just going down this path of sin and it's just God just plucked us up and there was nothing we could do. I believe strongly that as we look at Ephesians 2 today, we have a choice. We can choose to accept God's salvation or we can reject it. It's not completely irresistible. I also don't agree. I'm, I believe strongly that it's available to all. And... Um, This passage here never indicates that it's not available to everyone. Verse 5, And even when you were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace we are saved. Going back to the fact that we were sinners, we were lost, but for the grace of God. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it goes on from there. Outside of the grace of God, 
we had no hope. We had no chance of salvation. But we live in a time, I'm sure that there's been people since the earth began, but we have people around us who think, you know, we're pretty good people. We've got it all together. We haven't done anything too bad. And yet Paul is making it clear here that we've all sinned and fallen short. Really, if we think that we're pretty good, we're doing okay, we don't really need God, we don't really need to be saved, it's probably because of the standard that we're putting our lives up next to. And sure, if you compare yourself to the ten most evil people in the world, you probably are living pretty good compared to that. But that's not the standard that we should be holding our lives up to. Our standard should be God and his word. If you hold your life up to God's standard, we see very quickly that we're failing. We've had failed. That we cannot do it on our own. So if this requirement to receive... So what is... I'm sorry. What is the requirement to receive this grace and love of God. Let's go on there in verses 8 through 10. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It's grace that made this possible. It was not anything that we did. Thinking about this idea this morning that salvation from God is a gift. If you don't remember anything else from this message this morning, I want you to remember this. That growing up in a conservative Anabaptist church, one of the struggles we can have is thinking that We've got it all together. We are saved because of what we've done, what the family we were born into, the guidelines we follow, that those things save us. And yet this passage makes it very clear that salvation was a gift. Um, If I looked up the, the Strong's for the Greek definition of this word gift, making sure that we're not misunderstanding it. And it said a present, specifically a sacrifice, a gift, an offering. So it's things that we cannot pay for, if you understand. There's nothing, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of actions or things that we could pay to pay for this gift of salvation. And so if it is truly a gift... There can't be a payment for it. I was trying to think of an analogy for this. So if I gave one of my daughters a coat and she pays me back for the coat, was that a gift? Once she pays me for it, it's no longer a gift, is it? And so if the salvation from God was something that we paid God back for, then it's no longer a gift. And so Paul's making it clear there's nothing we can do to pay for it. 
And so one of the best ways to avoid in our, in our own lives becoming legalistic in our theology and our practice is to remember this point, that there is nothing we can do now, there's nothing we can do in the future that can ever pay for that gift of salvation. It is a free gift from God. But before any of you here become nervous about where this sounds like it's going, I also want to continue this analogy of a gift. So continuing to think about this, this idea of giving one of my daughters a coat, what if she lets it get into disrepair? She leaves it out in the weather. She lets the dog get a hold of it. Or she just simply puts it in a box in the basement and never uses it. Will that gift do her any good? And I think we see here so many people today who claim to have received the gift of salvation from God, but yet they put it in a box or they let it get torn up. If you want to benefit from that gift of salvation of God, we then have to do our part. It's not to pay for that gift. We never can do that. As I made that clear. We can never pay for that gift. We're never going to be worthy of that gift. God gave it to us because of his grace and love for us, not because we were worthy of it. But if we let it go, what if we turn back to the world? What if we turn back to our life of sin? To me, that's the same thing as if my daughter just simply doesn't use the coat. That coat will never keep her warm when it's cold or dry from the rain. The same is true for the gift of salvation. In uh, James, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. That's the main verse, but I do want to read the whole chapter. I tried to find a way to just read a few verses, and yet I felt like there was no good place to stop and start. About what is our response? How do we then respond if we've been given the gift of salvation through Christ? How do we respond to that? So James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. My brethren... Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons? For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world and rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
ye do well. So what does that have to do with faith and works? He's building up to the idea that even in little things, we need to be obedient. And he will continue to, and he brings up the royal law, the five commandments of the Old Testament that dealt with how you treat others. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have the judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. I'm going to stop again. Once again, he is talking about the law, and we'll look at that as we... I want to keep this all in mind. To me, it all ties together here with Ephesians 2, because then it talks about there also Christ coming and dealing with the, the Old Testament law. So he's saying here that if you disobey in one point, you've disobeyed in all. There are those who try to tell us that we need to still obey the Old Testament law along with even though Christ came. And we're going to see as we look in this message the reason that we don't need to do that, that there's no point in trying to do that, is that if we fail in one point, we have disobeyed the whole law, and that was why the law could never save us. We needed Jesus Christ to come. Verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not these things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you that my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he hath offered Isaac upon the altar, seeing thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Why is this chapter important to read while we're looking at Ephesians 2? Clearly, Paul makes it clear in, in Ephesians 2 that works and faith alone will not save us. That salvation comes to us free. So why then works and faith? How do those things go together? And like I was saying earlier, I believe it's all tied into the fact that up to the point of our salvation, there's nothing that we can do 
and to continue that gift of salvation, there's still nothing we can do to pay for that gift. So why do we do works? What's the value of our faith? And I think it's the way that we keep and possess that gift is faith and works come out of that. If not, we will lose that gift. That gift will, just as that coat put in a box in the basement, will not do my daughter any good. So, without faith and works, the gift of salvation will do us no good either. So is it possible to be saved by, while, while living totally outside of God's law? And I think James makes it very clear here that those things work together. Someone without works, what are works? Obedience and service is also someone who really does not have faith and really has not received the gift of salvation. So why do we do works? Why do we live in obedience to the laws that Christ taught us in the New Testament? And it's to bring, I believe it's to bring honor and joy to him rather than us paying for our salvation. Turn back with me now to Ephesians. We'll continue on there. Ephesians, back to Ephesians 2. And we'll pick back up at verse 11. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off or made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So what is he talking about here? Once again, Paul is reminding us of who we are and what position we were in before we came to Christ, before we received that gift of salvation. It's clear that without the cross, without the blood of Christ, we are lost. Paul's making that very clear. But then he addresses the whole issue of the Old Testament law in what Christ came to do. In verse 15, he says he abolished. But it very, makes it very clear in other parts of the New Testament, Jesus himself said that he did not come to take away the law or get rid of it. So what did he abolish? If he didn't abolish the law itself, he abolished the guilt that the law brought on us. It says he abolished the enmity. It's not that he abolished the law. God still demands righteousness from us. 
but he took away that guilt that comes from the law. How did he do that? It's that there was only one person who could ever keep the law perfectly. Moses couldn't keep it. He failed. And every man from Moses to Jesus failed in completely keeping the Old Testament law. Who could keep it? The only one was Christ. And by Him coming and keeping it and then dying on the cross, we no longer were held to that standard in through ourselves, but through the blood of Christ, we were no longer held to that law. Turn to with me to Galatians chapter 3. I believe it's also important to think about when we look at this and dealing with the law and with what are we held to? What standard are we held to? Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 17. And this I say that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. So once again saying, like I said earlier, Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He, that's not going to happen. That law was set by God, given to Moses and the children of Israel. That it should be made the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed shall come in whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by the angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have been given, verily righteousness should have been, made, been by the law. But the scripture hath conclu- concluded under all under sin that the promise by faith of Christ Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so I was trying to think about what, how to visualize this. It's in a sense that Christ, before Christ, the law was this schoolmaster. And he wasn't just this kind, sweet schoolmaster. He was a strict schoolmaster that was showing us all the ways we were failing, all the things that we were doing wrong. Christ came and he put himself as a mediator between us and that strict schoolmaster. And that's an amazing picture, amazing idea of what, what Christ has come to do. The law didn't go away, but Christ fulfilled it. Christ put himself in between us and them. When the schoolmaster would have said, you know, you are failing, you're messing up, Jesus is standing there between us to help us be obedient to what we need to do, but also to take care and fulfill that law. Now turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 2. 
picking up at verse 17. And came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Interesting thing, as we read through this chapter, mostly felt like he was speaking to to Gentiles, but here he brings it back around to show that this chapter applies not only to us as Gentiles, but also to the Jews who needed Christ just as much as we did. And it's not just that there's going to be two separate groups, the Jewish the Jews who become Christians and Gentiles who become Christians, but that we're all wrapped together, built in one group. And it's just an amazing picture. But he says here, those who are far off, the Gentiles, those who are nigh, the Jews, are all become a part of the building. What is this building? It's the kingdom of God. It's built upon Christ. He's the foundation. And then you have the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament. But the amazing picture that we're all together now a part of this thing. And going back to, why is this even possible? Because of the gift. And so my challenge that I want to leave with you this morning is, have you received this gift? Are you keeping the gift in the sense are you are you rejecting the gift that God gave you or each day appreciating what he's done for you are you serving him faithfully once again keeping in mind the whole focus of the message keeping in mind we're not working we're not living in faith to earn our salvation We can never do that, but are we striving to keep and to hold that gift and to recognize and not dirty that gift by sinning, by falling back into the ways of our old flesh? This doesn't mean, I've stressed it many times before, but I want to again this morning, this doesn't mean that we won't fail, that we won't sin, from time to time, but we should not be living in a life of sin. We should not be living in a life of failure if we have received this gift of salvation. But yeah, the challenge to you is, have you received it? And are you keeping it this morning? The Lord bless each one of you.